Our Father, we thank you that we can come and gather as your people, that we can come as we are uh, in all our brokenness and weakness and uh, doubts and confusion. And we pray this day that your word would minister to us and strengthen us uh, to trust in our Lord Jesus. Uh, In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I suspect that all of us uh, have different tendencies when it comes... That feels really loud, but uh, we all have different tendencies when it comes to expectations. Uh, Perhaps uh, some of us here are, by nature, uh, optimistic kind of people. Uh, So you you like to set really high expectations for yourself, for others, uh, for your life in general. You're a high expectations kind of person. Uh, You might even resonate with quotes. I mean, this is the extreme version. You might even resonate with quotes like this. Uh, Remember to reach for the stars and they won't be able to resist flying into your hands. Uh, It's a little bit vomitous, like a little bit sickening, right? But how about this one? Uh, I would encourage you to set really high goals. Set goals that that when you set them, uh, you think that's impossible. Uh, But then every day you can work towards those goals and anything is possible. So keep working hard and follow your dreams. Well, these are the kind of quotes. Right? The basic sentiment of these quotes uh, is that we really should have high expectations. You know, reach for the stars, follow your dreams, achieve the impossible. You can be absolutely anyone or anything that you want. Isn't that a message that we hear from our culture? And of course, many of us have tried that path, and it really has just led to one disappointment after another. Uh, so you're a little bit like the turtle that it's kind of stuck its head out of the shell a few too many times and you feel like your head's been trampled on. So in a kind of uh, fit of kind of self-protection, you, you, you have very low expectations. You resonate with people who say things like this. If you expect nothing from somebody, you'll never be disappointed. You know, life's great. Or my expectations were reduced to zero when I was 21 years old and everything since then has been a bonus. You know, if, the, if, the, if it's just kind of at ground zero, anything, you're just pleasantly surprised by every situation you come across. So I wonder what your tendency is uh, when it comes to setting expectations. Do you tend to be someone who has high expectations of yourself, of other people, of life, uh, of God? Or do you tend to be someone with low expectations? I think whatever tendency you have naturally, uh, one thing that uh, both ends of that spectrum have in common is that it can be really devastating when our expectations aren't being met. Or even if our expectations are, uh, well, they just seem to be completely shattered. You only honestly thought that this guy or girl was going to be the one for you. You know, that feeling, everything's going so well, but then out of nowhere, they dump you. You really thought that this year, you were finally going to pass all your exams and finish your uni uni degree. But you failed again. You really thought that this was the job you were going to get. The application went well, they gave you an interview, everyone in the interview seemed so happy with you, Uh, but then you got knocked back again. You really thought this was the month when you were going to get pregnant. But no, you have to go through that whole cycle again next month. 
You see, we, we, you had such high expectations of yourself, of others, of, of the circumstances of your, in your life. You had high expectations of God. God uh, can do the impossible, right? And it's all come to nothing. And so here you are just with a whole lot of disappointment and confusion and doubt. Right, that's really the sort of situation that John the Baptist is in. He had very high expectations for Jesus, but Jesus isn't meeting them. He feels let down by Jesus. So he's in this moment of disappointment and confusion and doubt. Now, before we get into uh, John the Baptist and the details of today's passage, uh, we as a church have, over the last couple of years, worked through Matthew chapters 1 to 10, but uh, I'm tipping that some of our memories are a little bit hazy on where we're up to. So let me just briefly bring us up to speed uh, with those first 10 chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Right, Zooming kind of flyover. In chapters 1 to 4 of Matthew's Gospel, uh, he wants to show us uh, mainly the arrival of God's King. Uh, In particular, he wanted us to see how Jesus' arrival as God's King uh, fulfills and kind of completes all the great promises of the Old Testament. Uh, Three of them in particular. First, uh, he wants us to see that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God's promised King, the one who was promised from the line of David. Uh, Second, he wants us to see that Jesus is God with us. You know that famous Christmas verse? Uh, He's Emmanuel. God with us. Matthew 1 verse 23. And third, uh, he wants us to see that Jesus is God's teacher. Uh, Jesus is like, like the ultimate prophet uh, who comes in the, in the line of Moses. Uh, so that's chapters 1 to 4. And then in chapters 5 to 7, Matthew gives us the first block of Jesus' teaching as God's king. Right? He's this great teacher. Uh, here he is doing his teaching as God's king. And the point is, in Matthew 5 to 7... Uh, That just as Moses went up a mountain uh, to tell God's people how they should live, uh, Jesus also goes up a mountain to tell his people, right, the fullness of God's people, how they should live. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. Uh, Then in chapters 8 to 10, uh, we looked at a whole lot of stories about Jesus' power as God's king. Wonderful stories about Jesus' power to heal and cleanse and, and restore people's lives. Right? And interspersed between those stories about Jesus' power, uh, there were several stories about the need to follow Jesus. Right? So the point of Matthew 8-10 to 10, uh, is that Jesus has this incredible power, but if you want to experience the power of his kingdom in your own life, you actually have to follow him yourself. That's Matthew 8-10. to 10. And so we've seen the arrival of God's king, Matthew 1 to 4, uh, the teaching of God's king, Matthew 5 to 7, the power of God's king, Matthew 8 to 10. Uh, And now we come to chapters 11 and 12, uh, which are really full of a whole lot of stories about how people respond to Jesus as God's king. And in many ways, the big question that ties together these three chapters is, is Jesus really God's king? Is he really God's king? And we're in these three chapters, 11, 12, and 13, we're given three big answers to that. The first, in today's passage, uh, is that John the Baptist has his doubts. Is Jesus really God's king? I'm not sure. Uh, then, uh, next week, we'll, we'll see that, by and large, the, the masses refuse to believe that Jesus is God's king. There's all this unbelief. Uh, and third, in the week after that, in, in chapter 12, we see that the Jewish leaders are openly hostile to the idea that Jesus is God's king. They actually start plotting to kill Jesus. Uh, so in these chapters, Jesus deals with each of these different responses to him, uh, starting in today's passage with John the Baptist's doubts. 
I was looking in verses 1 to 3 where we see that John doubts here. Matthew says, uh, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 uh, disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Uh, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, uh, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, this is a little bit surprising, but because back in Matthew chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist had kind of been on the front foot, right? He had publicly identified Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus is God's King. And then John baptized Jesus, if you remember, and he received this wonderful sign from heaven, confirming that Jesus was God's King. Right? So in Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, we read, uh, this is a, as, as soon as Jesus was baptized, uh, he went up out of the water, At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So you're reading Matthew 1 to 4. It's like John the Baptist is very clear on who Jesus is. Jesus is God's King. It's so clear that, that many kind of older uh, interpreters of this passage uh, would say, uh, John cannot be asking this question for his own benefit. Right? John doesn't have doubts about Jesus. He's clearly asking the question for his disciples, you see. Now, I just don't buy that. Right? Matthew tells us that it's John who's asking the question, presumably because he's not sure of the answer. And if that's a bit surprising, well, maybe it's less surprising if you think about the big story of the Bible. Isn't it true that some of the, the, the kind of men and women of great faith throughout the Bible had their moments of real doubt and confusion? Moses did, Abraham did, like a whole screed of them. Why John is no different. He has his doubts. He has his doubts about who Jesus is, what's causing his doubts. Well, maybe it's the fact that he's in prison. You see there that John's in prison. Uh, According to the Jewish historian uh, Josephus, uh, John was imprisoned uh, in this fortress called, uh, how do I pronounce this? Machairus. Right? I might have pronounced that wrong. I think I got it right, right? But it it was in this particularly desolate part of of the wilderness. It was hot and dry and arid. He was was very isolated. Uh, And uh, John, uh, you know, perhaps that's what was causing him to doubt. John obviously had some contact with his disciples, but he was extremely restricted, which would have been very hard for someone who'd spent most of their life enjoying complete freedom out in the wilderness. He'd been a wanderer out there, and now he's cooped up in prison. Maybe that's causing him to doubt. And of course, being in prison for the first time in his life, John was kind of removed from the front line of ministry. John was someone who'd led a whole movement. He'd been a a fearless preacher for the Lord. Yet here he was, cooped up in prison. Or maybe John's having these doubts because he was in prison. Or maybe he's having doubts because he's exhausted, just kind of physically and emotionally spent. Uh, A little bit later in this passage and earlier in Matthew's Gospel, uh, John the Baptist is compared to Elijah. Uh, Jesus does it himself in a few verses' time, and it's hard not to see the parallels between John and Elijah. You might remember that Elijah uh, publicly denounced King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. 
right? When it went right up into them and, and, and publicly denounced them. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 18. And John the Baptist does that sort of thing too. He publicly denounced uh, the sins of King Herod and his mistress Herodias. Didn't go down too well with King Herod. You see? And just as Elijah was uh, completely exhausted from his ministry and fled into the wilderness, uh, really just wanting to die, uh, maybe John the Baptist is exhausted after all the demands of his ministry. Isn't it true that often we experience our most spiritual doubts and confusion uh, in moments of physical and emotional exhaustion? It's why one of the key times for the evil one to attack us is straight after we've been on mission for something, you see. We've been working up to this big event. He knows you're exhausted. He'll sow some seeds of doubt. Or maybe John's experiencing that. But really the main reason why he's doubting is that Jesus isn't meeting his expectations. I I think that's clear. Uh, When John announced Jesus' arrival as God's king back in Matthew chapter 3, uh, he also announced that Jesus was going to bring justice. If you look, Matthew 3 verse 12. Matthew 3 verse 12, John says, uh, Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's the kind of ministry that John the Baptist thought Jesus was going to have. And he thought that because that's the kind of ministry the Messiah was supposed to have. Rather, the Messiah was supposed to overthrow everyone who opposed God's people. They were supposed to establish God's kingdom full of perfect justice and righteousness. And what does John see Jesus doing? I'm sure he's doing lots of good. Right? Healing the sick, casting, uh, raising the dead, casting out demons, calming storms, preaching good news, lots and lots of wonderful things. But where's the justice, you see? Why isn't Jesus overthrowing the Romans? Why, why isn't Jesus confronting Caesar? Why isn't Jesus chucking religious hypocrites out of the temple? Why uh, is John in prison for being kind of ballsy enough to get in King Herod's face? And yet here Jesus, supposedly God's king, seems to be doing nothing about evil and corruption and wickedness, you see just going around hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, having parties with them. As far as John can tell, uh, the world is just as evil and corrupt as it was before Jesus began his ministry. And that's what's causing him to doubt. And to some extent, I think that's an objection that people have today, Uh, perhaps particularly Jewish people. I was preparing this sermon and I came across a story about a Jewish rabbi in New York and he was told by a Christian that Jesus is God's king, right? Jesus is the Messiah. And the story goes that the rabbi kind of, you know, tottered over to the... Uh, did rabbis totter? I don't know, he was old. He was tottering. And uh, he opened up the, the kind of curtains and looked out the window at the city of New York and he just says, no, nah, I don't think so. Right? Because when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will bring justice. New York City won't be full of corruption and evil and wickedness and injustice. No, no, no. The Messiah hasn't come. Right? That's how John the Baptist felt. 
Is Jesus really God's king? John the Baptist has his doubts. So in verses 4 to 6, Jesus has some words for John the Baptist. Right, have a look there. He says to John's disciples, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. I just want you to note, first of all, that Jesus doesn't condemn John for having doubts, for asking questions. Are you really the Messiah? He doesn't condemn John for that. In Jesus' mind, uh, there is a very clear difference. You'll see as we read through these chapters, there's a very clear difference between the crowds who are just stubbornly refusing to believe in Jesus and John, who deep down really does believe in Jesus, but just has questions. It's like the, the, uh, the story of that guy who says, you know, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. That's the vibe with John the Baptist. Very clear difference. So the crowds are rebuked by Jesus. They're condemned for their unbelief. But John is encouraged by Jesus. He seeks to strengthen him with these words. Specifically by reminding him of several Old Testament passages that are all about the Messiah that are clearly being fulfilled in his ministry. That's what he's doing here. So I'm going to whip through some of these passages. Right? You won't probably have time. They're all in Isaiah. You might not have time to flick to all of them. But the first, for example, is in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. It says, then, right, which is when the Messiah comes, when God's kingdom is breaking in, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, uh, the ears of the deaf unstopped, uh, then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, go back and tell John. Tell John what's happening. The blind can see, that the deaf can hear, that the lame can walk. It's Isaiah 35 being fulfilled, John. Isaiah 26 verse 19 says, but your dead will live, Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in dust wake up and shout for joy. Jesus says, tell John that. Tell John that the dead are being raised. Or, or maybe the most well-known passage, because Jesus quotes it at the, at the very start of his ministry. Right here in Luke uh, chapter 4, verses uh, 18 and 19, uh, Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth and he quotes from Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 and 2. Uh, He says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus says, Tell John, reassure him that I'm going around proclaiming good news to the poor. Binding up the brokenhearted. Setting people free who are prisoners of, of Satan and sin and death. Tell John that this is being fulfilled in me. All these passages about the ri- arrival of God's King are being fulfilled in Jesus. Please don't doubt John, Jesus is saying. Please don't doubt. There's plenty of evidence that I'm God's King. Of course, the other thing that all these passages from Isaiah have in common, and there are a couple of others, uh, is that they all go on to speak about how how God will bring his justice through his king. 
Isn't that interesting? The very thing that John the Baptist was wanting, what he was expecting, but that Jesus isn't doing. So if you have Isaiah 61 open, that would be a good thing to do. Uh, if you want to, you can even have Isaiah 61 and Luke 4 open at, at the same time, if you like. Uh, but in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and, and 2, uh, you'll notice that the very next words, after the words that Jesus quotes in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, the very next words at the end of Isaiah 61, verse 2, are the day of vengeance of our God. So Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, takes out the scroll of Isaiah, reads these words, and deliberately stops before reading out the day of vengeance of our God. Why does he do that? Well, because bringing God's judgment and vengeance is not the purpose of his ministry right now. One day Jesus will bring God's vengeance. He will judge when he comes again. Right? But in this, his first coming, it's the day of the Lord's favour. It's the day of salvation, the day of grace and mercy and compassion. The day when through trusting in the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross in his place, uh, we can know that he bore all God's judgment, all the judgment that we deserve in our place, uh, that we might receive grace and mercy and compassion that we don't deserve. It's the day of the Lord's incredible favour, his blessing. His grace, His salvation. So that if we cling to Jesus, cling to Him in faith, even in the midst of our doubts, we can know that we're under God's favour, under His blessing. Which is the point of Jesus' last words from John, uh, last words for John in verse 6. He says, Blessed, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus is saying, John, you've made a good start with trusting in me. A really good start. But don't stumble now. No, persevere. Persevere to the end, knowing that as you trust in me, you will be blessed. You'll experience God's blessing rather than his judgment. And I say it before, like we can cling to Jesus in faith, even in the midst of our doubts. You really just need... I mean, I mean the, the illustration, the classic illustration of uh, of chairs uh, for faith, right? Let's say this chair had all four, four legs sawn off, you know, like seven eighths of the way through, and this one's really solid, right? Like I could be really, really confident, like not having a doubt, but if I sit on this chair, it's going to break, right? But if I sit on this chair and I'm full of doubts and confusion, I'm really not sure, full of trepidation. Maybe I'll sit on it, <gasps> right? You see, it's it's not. It's not the amount of faith you have, but how dependable the thing that you've got faith in, you see. So it's not about us and the, the, the strength of our faith. I've got to have so much faith. I've got lots of faith. I don't know. A little bit of faith in the right Jesus, the Lord Jesus, who is God's King, brings blessing. That's what Jesus is saying. So after Jesus speaks these words kind of for John, uh, in verses 7 to 15, he speaks a whole lot of words about John. Uh, if you look in verses 7 to 9, it's kind of summarizing those. Basically, uh, as John's disciples are heading back to him in prison, uh, Jesus is full of praise for John. Uh, he affirms that the crowds went out into the wilderness to see John uh, because they rightly believed he was a prophet. Uh, but then look at the end of verse 9. Uh, Jesus says that, that John is more than a prophet. 
And I think it's kind of more than a prophet because John uh, isn't just prophesying about Jesus coming, right, preparing the way for Jesus coming. Uh, John himself is actually the fulfillment of prophecies. It's not just Jesus who fulfills prophecies, but John does. Uh, which is why, uh, if you uh, look in verse 10, uh, Jesus quotes one of those prophecies about John the Baptist. Malachi 3 verse 1, he says, I will send my messenger ahead of you, that's John the Baptist, uh, who will prepare your way before you. So John, John's kind of special, more than a prophet, uh, because he's actually the fulfillment of prophecies himself. Uh, he's also special. Uh, because he has the privilege of uh, directly pointing people to Jesus. In some sense, all the prophets of the Old Testament prepared the way for Jesus. But not all of them were directly there, able to point people to Jesus and say, this is the Messiah. He is greater than me. His ministry kind of supersedes me. That's that's what was special about John the Baptist. That's why he was greater than, uh, than all the other Old Testament prophets. So if you look in verse 11, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the greatest of all prophets, not because of anything in himself, but because he pointed people to Jesus, the greatest one of all. Now that in and of itself would have been really shocking for these crowds. Why? They, they knew. They knew about the ministries of the great prophets of the past. Abraham. They knew about Moses. Moses was a great prophet. He performed wonderful miracles, all those plagues and through the Red Sea. And I mean, John the Baptist did nothing like that. Elijah, wonderful prophet. You know, up on Mount Carmel, bringing fire from heaven. How on earth could John the Baptist be greater then those prophets, that's what the crowds would have been thinking. But it's because he pointed people to Jesus. And then Jesus says something even more shocking. He says there, uh, you, you know how great John the Baptist is? Well, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Right? How, how is that possible? Even the least gifted Christian. The least significant, the least intelligent or bold or uh, the least full of faith, the least influential, the least Christian of today in every way you could possibly think is greater, not only the John the Baptist, but all the prophets of the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is saying. How is that possible? Well, it's possible, first of all, because like John the Baptist, we've got the privilege of pointing people to Jesus. We can witness to him testify about who Jesus is and what he's done. We can do that. Uh, But uh, what takes us uh, to be even greater than John the Baptist is that we can do that with even more clarity because we live on this side of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And we've got the whole New Testament where the apostles have kind of joined all the dots for us on who Jesus is and the significance of what he's done. We're so much greater where we can testify wonderfully to who Jesus is, the greatness of who he is and what he's done. So Don Carson, who's writing about this passage, he says this. He says, um, uh, so often Christians want to establish their greatness uh, with reference to their work or their giving or their intelligence or their preaching or or their gifts, their courage, their discernment. Uh, But Jesus unhesitatingly affirmed that even the least believer is greater than John the Baptist. Why? 
because of his or her ability living on this side of the coming of Jesus to point him out with greater clarity and understanding than all his forerunners ever could. If we really believe this, it will dissipate all cheap vying for greatness. It will force us to recognize that our true significance lies in our witness to Jesus. Isn't that true? You know, from the moment of Genesis, uh, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, what does it say in Genesis 11? The desire of them was to make a name for themselves. We want to make ourselves great. See, Jesus says, if you're a part of my kingdom, if you want to be, if you want to be truly great, be in relationship with me. If you want to be truly great? Point people, point people to me, Jesus says. To the greatness of who I am and what I've done. Why don't get caught up in this cheap kind of temporal, temporary greatness that this world might offer, you see. Be serious about greatness. Oh, hello. I didn't want Siri. Look at verse 12. This has never happened before. Anyway, look in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence uh, and violent people have been raiding it. So once more, another verse about this transition between uh, John the Baptist and the kingdom of God. Uh, And the key verb in this verse can be translated two different ways, which is why it's a little bit tricky. And some of you, if you've got a Bible, might have a footnote there. Uh, It could either mean that the kingdom of heaven uh, has been uh, forcefully advancing, or it could be what the NIV says, which is the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to force, subjected to violence. Now, of course, it's true that members of God's kingdom have always been subjected to force. Isn't it true? John the Baptist is in prison, uh, and ever since then, there's been persecution and oppression and violence towards uh, Christians. And so there's nothing kind of wrong with that. Uh, But isn't it also true that in Matthew 1 to 10, God's kingdom has been advancing with force? Not kind of violent, kind of punching force, but the force of Jesus' power as he's cast out demons and calmed storms and raised the dead and forgiven sins. Right? It's all about Jesus' authority and power as God's king. And I actually think that's what Matthew's point is here. Right? And so I actually, the second half of, verse, uh, of the verse, I think more helpfully speaks about how we're grabbing hold of God's kingdom. Right? It's not that uh, persecutors are, uh, are grabbing hold of Christians with force, but that Jesus wants his people to grab hold of him with force. You see, not to doubt, not to be wavering or in two minds like John the Baptist is, but to be confident and bold and, and, and to persevere in their trust in him, to grab hold of the kingdom of God with force, with confidence, with boldness. And then in verse 14, Jesus says this strange thing, which seems to be saying that John the Baptist is Elijah if you're willing to accept he's Elijah. Just kind of feels all very postmodern, doesn't it? If it's true for you, well, it's good for you, right? I mean, it's not what he's saying, right? But, uh, clearly, uh, now what are we? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, uh, if you look at, uh, you can look it up later on, John one verse twenty-one. Uh, I think that makes it clear that we're not required to believe that John the Baptist is literally Elijah, like like a reincarnated, right? That's a, we're not supposed to believe that. Uh, it must be more like Luke one verse seventeen. Uh, where we're told that John the Baptist is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And we've already seen a bit of this, right? There's lots of ways in which John the Baptist's ministry resembles Elijah's ministry. 
So I, I think Jesus' thinking here uh, is that if we accept that John the Baptist is Elijah, right? He, he's the one who prepared the way for his coming, then we'll also accept that Jesus is God's king. Right? You welcome John the Baptist, you welcome Jesus. You don't welcome John the Baptist, you don't welcome Jesus. I, th- I think that's the connection here. And of course, the crowds in verses 16 to 19 didn't welcome either of them. Uh, if you flick back a page, if you've got a Bible open, uh, Matthew 10, verse 41, just before this passage, uh, Matthew 10, verse 41, Jesus says, uh, Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. So now Jesus is like he's taking that verse and he's applying it to himself and John the Baptist. He's saying a prophet has come in John the Baptist. A righteous man has come in John the Baptist and me. But instead of welcoming them, you've rejected them like immature children. See Jesus' point. Children who were just never happy. See the illustration there? They didn't like John's way of teaching when he kind of played a dirge and warned them about God's judgment. Oh, John's too intense. We don't like that, you know. Now they don't like Jesus' way of teaching when he plays a pipe and tells them about God's grace. Oh, he hangs out with sinners. Oh, you know, that's why verses 18 and 19 are there. For John came neither eating nor drinking. He abstained from everything. And they say he has a demon. And then the Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And doesn't this happen today? Right? God sends all sorts of messages, messengers, right? different kinds of people. But instead of welcoming them, Matthew 10, 41, instead of welcoming them, uh, most people pick holes in them. And let's be honest, some of them deserve to have holes picked in them. There are some pretty ordinary Christian leaders and ministers today. I'm not saying that. Let's pick holes in the right ones. But uh, lots of the time, this picking of holes uh, is really just never being happy. It's stubborn unbelief. The unbelief that we'll see next week will ultimately receive God's judgment. So really, we, we mustn't let that happen to us. You mustn't let that happen to you. And maybe you're here and you've started to follow Jesus. Uh, but it just hasn't been what you expected. And maybe you even feel that Jesus has let you down. And so you, you are actually full of disappointment and, and confusion and doubt, not just at life in general or at this person or that person, but at God. And if that's you, I want you to hear Jesus' assurance in this passage. Right? It's supposed to have an assuring effect, an encouraging effect, because Jesus says, look at the evidence. Look at my life, my ministry. Right? I'm doing everything you would expect of God's King. Everything you would expect. Uh, of course, we've also got to hear the, the warning in this passage. Right? It's not just assurance. There, there is warning here because we know that the day of salvation, the day of the Lord's favour, won't last forever. You read, read those passages from Isaiah, right? Jesus will return to judge. And on that day, we, we want to be clinging to him in faith, taking refuge in him. 
despite any doubts that we might have. By clinging to the fact that Jesus died on the cross. The one, actually, Jesus, the one who fulfilled every expectation of his Father, unlike us, right? Jesus died on the cross for people like us who mess up expectations all the time and fail in all sorts of ways. Jesus died on the cross to bear all the judgment we deserve that we might experience all the blessings that we don't deserve. We cling to him in faith. That's the only wise thing to do. Look in verse 19. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. It's Jesus' way of saying, sit on the right chair. You know, the fool sits confidently on a dodgy chair. The wise person sits with doubts and confusion on the, on the solid chair, you see. The wise person shows their wisdom in their deeds, particularly in their willingness to trust and follow Jesus as God's king. Uh, let's pray. Uh, our Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we do thank you that uh, it ministers to us in all the different circumstances of life. So I do particularly pray for those uh, who even this day might have uh, doubts or confusion uh, about who Jesus is. Perhaps uh, there are some here who uh, would openly say, yeah, I'm not a Christian yet. I'm trying to think all these things through. I pray that they would have been uh, clearer from this, your word uh, today, on who Jesus is, that uh, he really is uh, your king, uh, who will one day establish your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray for those who perhaps uh, do know you and trust in you, uh, but for whatever reason they're in a season, uh, maybe a really long season, where they're having some doubts and struggles. Please encourage them, Father, I pray, and strengthen them in their trust in our Lord Jesus. Amen.